Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hopcast Book Show, episode number 161. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. You did it in that Michael Caine way. I do. I do sometimes. I can't help it. My name is Rebecca Collins. And yeah. my name is Adrian Hobart. All right. Anyway. Welcome to the show. And uh, we ought to remind you who, what we are and what we do. We run Hobart Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Mysteries. Suspense. Crime. And thrillers. Welcome to the show. And our guest this week is Miriam Halami, who is a brilliant author of books, particularly aimed at uh, middle grade and young adult readers. At the moment. At the moment, mm. yes, indeed. And uh, her topics delve in all sorts of, well, you know, very, very deep human experience absolutely basically the human experience i'd say we yeah. talked about in a, in a broad sense um a brilliant interview and as usual we go off in a tangent we don't expect and we run with it it's great we do we do so miriam's our guest and uh, we're looking forward to speaking to her but um we also we have one overwhelming story in our news section this week which erupted it's the end oh uh, crikey yeah only way to describe it three days ago and that is, well, I don't know where to start with this because it's made me so annoyed. Yes, you've been watching TV randomly um, this week and you'll suddenly go, <clears throat> and I'll say, oh, what is it? And you'll say, it's this story that we're about to tell everybody. Yeah. Okay. So this is a company that we have dealt with and talked about a fair bit in recent weeks and months. And we're talking about Spotify. And I say Spotify because... They are the parent company, having bought out Findaway Voices about 18 months ago. Uh, Findaway Voices are the distributor of our self-produced audiobook content. Yes. We've got several titles which have been produced by another uh, supplier on license. But the ones that I've recorded and Alison Morgan's recorded and other members of our team and, and our wider team have recorded four Hobeck, Hobeck titles are with Findaway Voices. Now, let's just go back to why we chose Findaway Voices in the first place, when they were an independent company particularly. I think that's part of it. You've answered that already. They were an independent company. Well, so. that, that, But they offered the widest possible distribution for your audiobooks of any other platform. You know, not just stuck with Audible or Apple Books or anything like that. It's 42 different platforms currently on offer through Findaway. Yeah, and there were so many things to like about working with them. Reporting was great. Yes. Uh, help 
Whenever we we come stuck about something, they were yep. very quick. Everything, you know, we were really happy with Findaway Voices. And the best thing about them was their library distribution at the United States, Absolutely, which yeah. is a big source of audiobook income. Actually, probably the biggest source at, um, uh, the, as we speak. And uh, that was terrific. And they also, well, they just weren't spammy like Audible. No, not be. at all. No. And, they, and they gave more generous royalty rates as well. So all of those factors led us to, to find a way's door. But Spotify took them over 18 months ago. The first time we got upset with Spotify's influence was when it became clear that they changed the terms of the deals and allowed narrators' voices on those productions to be offered over to Apple for the development of their AI narration without anyone, you know, without making it clear that that clause was going into their contracts and without recompense for the for the narrators and no, none of us had any say so in it no so we we wrote to them and said right you're not to use any of the productions that we've done and as far as we know we've not had it confirmed they've done that but now this is the the, the latest they added uh, a clause to their contracts and remind uh, I need to remind you that when they add a clause if you continue to use find a way, you agree to the terms regardless. And the, the clause was so sweeping three days ago. This is for changes that will take effect in mid-March, 15th of March. That it gave them essentially, I won't read out the wording because it's not, you know, it's legalese. But basically gave them control of the rights of any product that you gave with them, so an audiobook, and allowed them to transcribe said audiobook and then publish that without royalties, without any recompense, to use any of the characters within those productions and use and create secondary works based on your original audiobook that you put with them, essentially stealing huge chunks of your ip well it's the whole ip yeah exactly and their argument is that they need this so that they can promote your audiobooks more effectively on spotify but they are just basically land grabbing so for instance if one of your audiobooks was then transcribed or whatever it was and they and somebody went to spotify and said right we want to make a film of such and such and they would have taken the rights from you without proper permission, no recompense, no royalties, nothing. And they could say, yeah, by all means, make a Hollywood movie of this Hobet book. Okay, so um, I want to do an example. Waking the Tiger by Mark Whiteman. Yeah. We don't have the film rights to that book, yet um, we have the audio, and um, we've uploaded the audio to find a way, so therefore it's on Spotify. They can make a film of Waking the Tiger, even though it's in our contract with the agent... That yes. we don't have the film rights. Yes, that's a very good example. So that's essentially what happened. Anyway, naturally, someone spotted this. I mean, let me tell well, you. Lots of people did. Well, let, <laughs> let me tell you, find a way didn't write and say, by the way, we're turn, changing our terms and conditions. They just slipped it in, as they did. That's with, last the, the, time, yeah. Yes, they did before. Anyway, it, you know, it created a massive furore, particularly on X stroke Twitter. Um, and the result was, first horror at the land grab by Spotify, who've already upset publishers and authors because 
they're giving away 15 hours of free content and it's not clear how you get paid for it. Um, that's for premium subscribers. But um, then they, they do this. And that started a huge move in the last two to three days of people trying to remove their productions from Find Away Voices. And some succeeded immediately. They got straight on there. But what then Spotify and Find Away did was take away the ability to delete your production. So, so there's, there's a delete button that's on the system. That's criminal. <laughs> that must be criminal. Well, you'd think so, yes. And the argument is, I mean, you know, the, the thing with with Spotify, and I think they're emboldened because they're about to win a big case against Apple to the tune of $450 million um, for anti-competitive uh, behaviour by Apple um, over their music service, uh, which I read today that that's, that's likely to come. But, you know, the fact is that Spotify have a bunch of lawyers who think they can insert a clause like that into the find-away contract and then rough it out. It didn't work because people did delete dozens, thousands of productions immediately. Yeah, but... And then they disabled the ability to do so, um, to stop the, the firestorm that was engulfing them. And then they sent out an email, uh, which I'm just <coughs> going to dig out. So bear with me while I um, dig that out, because uh, you sent it on to me. And uh, oh, so yes, that it was, came through our it, Hoback it, it address. Says, yeah, it was Findaway emailing us about um, something to do with this. Right. So here we go. I've got it now. Um, following our note from yesterday and building upon feedback and dialogue with authors <laughs> and other literary community members, we're writing to share updated terms of use. These updated terms go into effect on the March the fifteenth, twenty twenty-four. We have made substantive changes to clarify your rights and ours regarding the usage of Findaway Voices by Spotify in Section 4B of the terms. We have consulted with members of the publishing community, and we believe these terms are in line with the industry while providing Spotify with what we need to promote and grow the audience of your published work. To be clear, we will not... <laughs> to be clear. Use... Yeah, exactly. Oh, nice of them to be clear for once. Use your content to create a new book, ebook, or audiobook without your permission. Well, I don't care if you you can't even you shouldn't be allowed to try anyway. Provide access to your audiobook without paying you royalties. Oh well, because they were trying to do that royalty free. And use your content to create a new AI voice without your permission. That's still not the same. They shouldn't be trying it at all, frankly. In addition, we've prepared responses to some of the questions we've received, and you can read them on our blog. We look forward to continuing to contribute to the success of your published works. Thank you again and for your patience and partnership. Well, uh, I need to go delving into all of this. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, as we're concerned, really, this really is it with Find A Way. But the question is, we haven't taken down our books, A, because we couldn't, because they took away the, the facility to do so in that uh, firestorm period. It's not clear what the alternative distribution model is. That's the main is. problem, isn't it? Because it's con it was convenient. It was incredibly convenient yeah. to use Findaway. So, yeah, the alternative. And I'm not sure Tricky. that we didn't sign away the rights, essentially, for 10 years anyway. Um, for distribution so we could take them down maybe they wouldn't be appearing anywhere 
Yeah, was my other uh, yeah, question. I know. So, yeah, we've got to do a bit of research in order to know how to act, how ha- to react even. No, absolutely. But I think this emphasises, you know, we've had problems with Amazon and, you know, there are always issues with the, with Amazon in terms of the way that they deal with you as publishers or independent authors or whatever it might be. The arbitrary nature of the things that can get away, you know, they can put in the way of smooth publication. Oh, I mean, Amazon, you're just always bowing down to their rules and there is no um, leeway in anything. So, yeah, but we, we've kind of accepted and got used to that, which isn't right, but we have. Yeah, and, and, and you know, at the core of it, we owe Amazon one thing, which is that the fact that they started publishing ebooks and made it available to everybody democratised the whole publishing industry and allowed companies like Hobeck to exist. Yeah. So give them core credit, but their behaviour and the customer service subsequently is dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. Um, and the, the other things that they've done in the past, which is passing on, you know, if people return books or audio books and then passing on those costs back to the uh, thing, even though it's their terms and conditions that allow people to to return them within a year at one point uh, and people were just using it as a lending library uh that was our fault apparently no i mean you know so a big massive company and people we often have this argument with our authors if you like when something does get in the way because amazon decide that you know there's an infraction of you know an imagined difficulty that they've created yeah out of thin air that somehow we're at fault because they're a big company they wouldn't do something like that well they are they are a huge company but they're just riddled with structural faults in the way that the coding's been piled on on, on, yeah, on top so, of itself i mean little things like an author might say why is my book in the category of um whatever it is that's not my book isn't about that and you think well okay i didn't put it in that category but amazon Obviously, especially with the paperbacks, we have less control over the paperbacks, especially if they're printed elsewhere. If they're not printed with Amazon um, KDP printing, then we don't have control over the blurb, the categories, anything like that. But authors can't quite get their head around that. And and it's really difficult, isn't it, sometimes, the sort of managing expectations. Well, I don't, don't, you know, I'm not ascribing blame to any authors for thinking that because it's natural to assume surely it's possible to x i agree and and it it absolutely isn't because that's the way amazon i I always feel like i'm i'm passing the buck you know by saying well there's nothing i can do about it almost like it feels like i'm saying i can't be bothered but that's not true at all it's that i really can't (laughs) but i mean I, i didn't you know i'm not necessarily here to bash amazon afresh here no it's just that what the 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 point i'm trying to make is that big tech has decided it does not give a whatever for the small individual creative business with an individual author or a small publisher like us or indeed i'm sure this these problems are faced by bigger publishers i'm not i'm not uh, you know trying to you know the, the there's certainly some big publishers who are saying, well, what about this new Spotify, you know, free 15-hour thing? What about us? And they managed to get a conversation going. But at the level below the big five, there was no conversation. It just happened. And the 
the conclusion you have to draw now is that it's a hostile environment in which to publish your work because the big companies their adoption of AI narration, for instance, in this case, Spotify and other platforms are now allowing AI narration, particularly if it's their AI narration systems that that you use to create AI narrated books. Everything is in their favour and not in ours. And we are at a tipping point where this was a good example of the author community managed to force some change. And as of yet, we're not clear on what changes to the contract there are. But I don't welcome any of the changes, even watered down, that they were proposing at all. So now we have to find a new platform. And there isn't... Authors Republic is possibly the only one, but I'm still not convinced because their distribution channels are tiny compared to what Findaway were offering. I know. It's only yeah. six platforms. It's not really good enough. Well, we'll just have to... Watch this space, I guess. And they got us over a barrel. And when, you know, all pretense of being for the little guy, which is what Findaway used to present themselves as, um, goes, what are you left with? And it just leaves a very bitter taste, you know. And, and actually, the fact is that the revenue from audio is so low. You know, the, rate, the royalty rates are terrible. Um the ability to market your audio is so difficult. I mean, you know, it, it's tempting to think that the only way to do it is to direct sales is through direct sales now. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, unfortunately that doesn't really work because people like to listen within the environment of an audible app or a Spotify app or whatever it might be Absolutely. that they're used to. So you kind of need, and, and the, the fact is if you do it, direct there really isn't an easy way to sell those files and then for people to play them back and in fact that's another thing that's find a way used to offer which was we used to have on on our website our own little shop for our audio where we could price it differently to anybody else and offer it cheaper Mm. they took that away as well and then that was that that function so yet another (sighs) thing that they've taken away anyway the bottom line is this this has been a massive firestorm it has really upset the author and independent community. In fact, all of publishing should be aghast at this behaviour. And I'm sure there's more rubbish coming down the pipe in 2024. That's oh, a from lovely the, image. <laughs> from these, enorm- from these <coughs> enormous companies. But independent publishing, as we knew it a few years ago, where you know we had these platforms enabled people to build an income and build a uh, an audience and whatever else are increasingly hostile environments, not ones that positively help you, and that's really disappointing and upsetting, frankly. Yes. Okay. <laughs> There's not much more I can say to that, but yeah, watch this space, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Rant over. Let's talk to. This is a hard one to. Sometimes it's very hard to do the switch between one item on the program and the next. But uh, it's time for the interview. Yeah, you're a professional. You should be able to do that. Yeah, well, not when, what we used to do in, in professional broadcasting was do a long pause, particularly if you've done an obituary. They do that on the news and stuff, don't they? Yeah, you look down if you're on the TV. If it's a, yeah, exactly. If someone's died, you see them looking sad and to the distance. And then they say, now for the weather. <laughs> yeah, enough of all that. Let's talk to about you know, the weather. No, let's talk to Miriam Halami. Now, Miriam uh, is a former teacher and is still very committed to 
reaching out and helping young people understand the world, really, and has written a number of books, particularly around historical areas of displacement, I suppose, about refugees from Nazi Germany or uh, indeed from uh, Iraq in her most recent published work, The Boy from Baghdad, is about a Jewish boy, an Iraqi Jew, moving to Israel and feeling displaced there. And so this is a very, very strong theme, and there's some really tough areas of human experience that she's dealing with in her books. But she's an inspiring author and uh, a a big campaigner for peace. And clearly, in the current, as we talk about, current world circumstances, particularly between Israel and the Palestinians, you know, these issues have been thrown into much, much sharper focus, and it's very, very tough mm. for all concerned. And this is really the, the theme of this interview that we have with Miriam Halami. Rebecca, I've got a question for you yeah. before we speak to our guest. And what is it? There's a theme developing here, which is retired teachers becoming <laughs> authors, which we had last week and we've had many of. And now this week, we're delighted to be joined by Miriam Halami. Thank you for joining us. And you are indeed a former teacher. Yes. Um, actually, I went to school from the age of three and um, my teacher wore a gown. Really? Was, um, yes, well, like really. Like a graduation I mean, gown. <laughs> yeah, like a graduation gown. Mrs. Ison. And I absolutely loved her and um, I loved being in school. So I decided I want to be a teacher and I never really changed my mind. So from the age of three, that was your ambition? That was my ambition. But also, uh, my mum said that I taught myself to read by three and a half. She said, you weren't just saying the stories like children say, you know. Mm. She said you were pointing to the words and reading them. And reading was the most important thing I did as a child, apart from playing out, because I was a very active kid as well. So there was this whole thing of reading and then of reading the books. I wanted to write them. So I wanted to be a teacher and I wanted to write. So the two things run parallel together, really, although it's not always possible to do the two things at the same time. No, I, I imagine not, because as we hear from many teachers who have retired and now write, they just didn't have time. In yeah, their they wanted to. The desire was always there and they drew a lot of um, inspiration from the reading they'd done and, and, and their remembrance of being people of the, the age that you were teaching. Uh, and bringing that to their their craft, but at the same time, it just wasn't time. Was, was that the case for you? I think I think that there's there for me also. Um, I, I think that it's it's very handy if a children's writer, particularly, has very good recall. I mean, I think it's very good for all writers. Um, and so um, I could remember, you know, what it felt like to be a child, what it felt like to be a teenager, and those feelings definitely come into my writing. Um, because I was not writing for children and teenagers when I was teaching or when my children were young. Although luckily now I have grandchildren of nine and seven, and that's really handy. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, you've got to test audience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they, the older one particularly, um, he reads straight through my books now. He's a very, very good reader. He's a voracious reader like me and reads until 10 o'clock every night, which I'm sure is not good for him. But... <laughs> He doesn't sleep much. Um, and so we, you know, we lived in Narnia for two years. We have a similar imagination. Yeah. But now it's all Alex Ryder. <laughs> I love that. So so is do, does he read your books before they're published or does he wait till? He hasn't reached that stage yet. 
that. Um, but he he has said, I mean, I've just had a, a middle grade book out and he read it through in three nights. <laughs> um, I was really and I said to him, you are the first child to have read the published book. I mean, and that, and he and I tested him on it. And there are words in different languages, Hebrew, Arabic, and he knew them. He he really had absorbed the book. My next book is a is a YA book, but he's already said I'm going to read it. So he might as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he must he must love having a, a writer in the family like that you know to think they're both great, very proud and that, and that and that that feedback I mean my children were proud uh, they were teenagers when I I first started publishing and it's lovely to see that again and they they go into school and in fact I've been into their school and I do bits of drama and I put them as you know the main person oh <laughs> the best parts <laughs> fantastic now I mean we're talking about a book which came out in October. It's a boy from back from Baghdad. Boy from Baghdad, yes. And um, this is very close to your heart because it, it it kind of it touches on your origin story in in a way. And this is a boy who is Jewish in Iraq. Persecution becomes too much for the family, and they move to Israel. And that sense of displacement, which is a big theme in your books, isn't it? Yes, it, it does seem to be. The whole refugee theme ha has recurred in my novels. I mean, my first teenage novel, Hidden, um, which also drew on this Iraqi background because I married into an Iraqi Jewish family. They were born in Baghdad um, and they had to, the whole community was forced into exile when the Iraqi government turned against them and they were airlifted to Israel between 1949 and 1951. And only 6,000 were left. It's actually the only time in history when an entire community gets up and leaves. They left within about two months in the end. Um, it, it's an extraordinary story, a very unknown story. Um, and I knew nothing about them. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. My my grandparents come from Poland. Um, and I knew nothing about the Middle Eastern Jews. Um, and so this whole diversity thing, which is so prevalent today in literature and should be, um, there is huge diversity in the Jewish world, which is not always embraced and understood. So my book is partly to try to get people to understand that Jews have an enormous presence in the Middle East, um, which is has almost been negated, really, um, particularly in current times. And the Jews um, were there in Iraq before anybody, two and a half thousand years ago. They are the Babylonian Jews. They were taken into exile by the waters of Rab Babylon. We sat down, yea, we wept. That is the Jews. And they were there before Islam, before Christianity, um, and they and they stayed. Um, so it, so it, it's a fascinating history. And um, there were nearly one million Jews um, forced into exile, ethnically cleansed from the Middle East um, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. And it's a very important story. And their culture is amazing. And it's nothing like my Ashkenazi culture, you know, they, we don't eat the same food, we don't listen to the same music, we don't speak the same language. The Ashkenazi Jews developed Yiddish, and the Arab, the Jews in, the, in, in Iraq developed Judeo-Arabic, mm. which I can't speak, of course. Um, <laughs> so, I, so um, ultimately, I, 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 as a, as a, I love stories, and my Iraqi Jewish family told me so many stories. And then I did all the research because I don't just take an anecdote as fact. You know, I, I researched, backed everything up. And this book, A Boy from Baghdad, sort of burst into existence during COVID when I didn't think yeah. I was going to write a word. 
and um, it was very well received within the Jewish world. And it has a, a Jewish publisher and it's out in America. They've taken 5,000 copies to wow. send to Jewish families there. And uh, and it's, it's you know, it's really, I wasn't sure it, how well it would be received here, but a lot of, it's mainly been um, sort of like school librarian conferences I've spoken to, mainly non-Jewish adults who said, wow, I didn't know this story. And this is a whole new story to to find. and. You know, that's how. And I also I've spoken in schools last week and the kids were amazing. I mean, these are 10 year old children. They were Jewish children, but the, only two or three were of Iraqi Jewish background. And they were so receptive and understanding. And the context, you know, it's not easy. What do you mean you lived in Baghdad? And and, you know, it's and the Zoom that I was on last night when I was trying to get my Zoom to work was about Iraqi Jewish surnames. This amazing researcher is finding documentation that we didn't even know existed. <laughs> so we're examining our, our Iraqi surname is Fabaza, which means baker. And they transliterated it into a Hebrew name, Halachmi, which we say Halami, but it's the second H is, and that also means Lechem, Lachem, bread. That's so, you know, it's fascinating. And I'm the only Miriam Halami on the internet because nobody spells our surname the way we do. Well, I was going to say, you were quite easy to find. <laughs> well, I looked you up earlier. I, I was like, that's got to be her. <laughs> I know, it's amazing. But isn't that interesting, though, that children who haven't got direct experience with something because of time and place as well have the imagination to almost imagine that experience and, and relate to it? I know. I, children never cease to amaze me. Um, I wrote a book about the kinder transport called Saving Hanno and went in and talked to six year olds and said, how many of you have heard of World War Two? Let's go up. And who did we fight? Britain and Germany. And, you know, and 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 you know that um, the Germans, I always say to them, you know, the Nazis came to power and they didn't like anybody. They didn't even like each other because they were always giving each other away. This is how I deal with fascism. You know, they didn't like anybody and they especially didn't like the Jewish people. So Jewish parents sent their children to England and I've dealt with the Holocaust. But, you know, the kids context is amazing. And the same thing with these. There was these were three Jewish schools last Wednesday morning. Um, and I have to say that we had to consult with the Metropolitan Police. They were brought into um, a Barnet Library. And we had to bring them in the back way because we thought if we brought them into the main library, they could get some because they're wearing Jewish clothing. Of course, they could yeah. get some, you know, antipathy. And we didn't want them. We wanted them to have a really good morning. because It's a difficult time in the Jewish community. And we just wanted them to have a great morning, you know, and, and they were they were amazing. And they hadn't read the book. I think a few of them had. But there was a little boy in the front row. And my main character is Salman and his cousin is Latif. When they go to Israel, they have to change their names to, to Hebrew names. But he said, I have to tell you, I have to say my grandfather, he had to leave Iraq in 1969 and his name was Latif. And he was Aww. so excited. Oh, so cute. He's probably dying to tell you that all morning. He couldn't, couldn't wait. We had lots of conversations and his auntie emailed me from Great Neck. You can't say that with an English accent. I mean, Great <laughs> Neck. It doesn't work. It? Great Neck. And I thought, where's this? And she said, I know your brother-in-law, Oded, who's a very well-known sculptor in New York, Oded Halachmi, and we love his art. And we have a, we are part of the Iraqi Jewish community in New York. And I looked Great Neck up, and actually it's on Long Island. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, come and talk in our Iraqi synagogue about the book. So wow. those lovely, lovely connections. Yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that is fantastic. And and. 
you know, those young people, I mean, do you think that that experience of having to be ushered in through the back door, if you like, and, and your books now have a greater resonance in the current circumstances. These young kids are growing up in, in um, areas of, of London, for instance, which have very strong Jewish communities. There must be this feel that a lot of what you're talking about is resonating with them, which is very unfortunate, but nonetheless a fact. Uh, yeah, when I talk to the, um, uh, as I said, large groups of, of non-Jewish librarians, they also said this is so relevant for today and what's going on. One girl, um, she was probably in year seven. I had one year seven group and two year sixes, so she's probably 11. She asked me, she said, your book is about the Jews having to leave Iraq. Do you think that you might have to do that today as a Jewish person today? And of course, I have to be very, very careful what I say. And I think teachers do as well, because I'm not there to give them a political education. So I thought very carefully and I said one word. I said possibly. And then I said next question. Yeah. But I thought to myself, what's being said around her dinner table? Because my um, my son hasn't talked to the boys at all and they don't watch the news in front of them because they feel they do go to a Jewish school. The security has been doubled. They have to pay extra now for the extra security and they have to pay more for them to be um, escorted down to swimming next term because they don't want their Jewish school walking around without serious security. Gosh. But we have shielded them. And it's very interesting that neither of my grandsons have brought up the situation. And I'm pleased they're going to grow up into this. They don't need it now. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. No, that's true. Well, I mean, you know, I, it's a weird thing to say, but I have experience of going to a Jewish school yeah. in London, North London, um, even though I'm not Jewish. I ought to stress, but it was my local school, uh, Hillel House, as it was in oh, Wilsdon. Cool. Yes, and uh, <laughs> and I, you know, this is when I was in uh, reception. Kind of five, four, yeah, I left. I left at five to to move to Cambridge, and um, you know, it, it was a very strong uh, Jewish ethos and teaching uh, thing. You know, and I would wear my skull cap and on a Friday and all this sort of stuff. Uh, Mrs. Okay. Vigoda was my first teacher. <laughs> Mrs. Vigoda was. A fabulous teacher, but incredibly fearsome. Well, teachers uh, are when you're a child, aren't they? they yeah. Our generation, anyway, the memory of your... <laughs> um, and and the, the story is that on my final day there, we were gathering together on the Friday, and there was a big ceremony in the assembly hall, and the two pupils of different ages would be called up, so the little guys would be called up to sit at one end of the table each. Oh, I and I, it was the only time I got called up, obviously, and they made it as a... Because I'm not... Being not Jewish, I would never get selected. You see, so but as so it's your last day, as my last day, oh. they made that uh, that that uh, that tribute. Anyway, I digress, but it, it just goes to show. I think what I'm trying to say <laughs> is that in this circumstance that we're in at the moment, where there is so much polarization, mm. and you know, one side good, one side bad, depending on which side of the the, the perspective you have, which is the way that. It's all being presented at the moment. And I don't think there's yeah. any any doubt that there's a lot of us in the middle who are wanting peace for everybody and coexistence, but that's yeah. not what's being expressed. Um, it just goes to show that, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, intertwining of uh, ethnicity and religious and all sorts of things 
Mm. You know, we're very, very much um, entwined, I think, as as cultures. Mm. And actually, all of the things that are happening at the moment are just trying to pull those those fibres apart. Is that how you feel about it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've been involved in peace and dialogue for 50 years. It's horrendous. I mean, I've been obviously many times to Israel, but I've been into the West Bank. I've visited a Palestinian encampment. I worked with Palestinians when I worked on a a kibbutz. I've met Palestinians here. You know, I have uh, Muslim friends. I I just I feel that we are being pulled apart. Um, I feel that for the Jewish world, certainly everything has changed since October the 7th. We no longer feel secure in this country. We felt we were in a bubble for 70 years. There was a knife attack five minutes from my house two weeks ago. My daughter rang me from work and I locked the front door. It's ridiculous. I mean, I'm not going to not go out. but And and I, I don't want to be forced into ways of thinking that I simply did not give house room to before. Uh, me and my family are open, egalitarian people. Uh, we we just want and and the the connections between the Arab world and the Jewish world are huge. We have so much in common: family life, festivals, you know, food, um, music. Arabic music's played all over Israel now. I know I can sing along to <laughs> the Arabic, the Arabic Um Kalthum and Farid Al Trash, having you know lived in the family for forty five years, and I think all of that is lost. But I am very cheered, particularly this book came out on October the 1st. My book wow. launch was on October the 12th. We, we nearly cancelled it. The news the day before of the 40 babies with the throats cut nearly just broke us. And we just, you know, but we felt that people needed to gather. And there were, you know, non-Jewish people coming as well as it wasn't just, you know, one type of people and Iraqi Jews. I had to test my book out in front of them. They said they'd been swimming in the in the river and they, they liked it. They said it worked well. But we felt it was a moment to gather on both my publisher, who is Jewish, and I talked about, you know, it's horrendous, but we have to work towards peace. We have to think about peace. Um, but, uh, you know, in a way, this book coming out right now at this time has opened doors for discussion and those discussions have taken place. And what I say to groups, particularly the librarians when I met them was, look, it is absolutely right and proper that we learn about the slave trade over and over again. We learn about, um, you know, black history in the Western world and how people have been treated. It's absolutely right and proper. We know about the Irish famine, particularly as British people. But it is also important that everybody learns the Jewish narrative and reads about and people don't. They, they they learn about the Holocaust and forget about it. And they don't know that. And the Jewish narrative is not all about the Holocaust. It goes back 5000 years and has contributed actually a lot to the world and is very interesting. And my book, I hope, will will contribute to people wanting to know more about the Jewish narrative. Yeah. yeah, no, that's very true, isn't it? I mean, I think back to my education and, yeah, the Holocaust was the focus of what you learn about the, the Jewish culture and Jewish world yes. and history. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it is, but it is the thing that is currently, you know, driving us to where we are now in a, in a sense, isn't it? That, you know, that, that, to, to, that the Holocaust and the, uh reaction after the war and all that sort of thing 
is has, has taken us to where we you know we currently are in terms of you know these polarities in a sense that I, I don't know if that's a fair point to make but it but it seems to be you know we are still and this is not just about the Holocaust, by the way. I ought to say that some of the issues that we're facing worldwide are still legacies of World War Two, whether they it's, are. you know, a sense of, of, you know, Putin last week talking to Tucker Carlson and, and saying it's all about denazification because yeah. that is Shocking. absolutely. Well, it's dreadful that he's saying that. But at the same time, yeah. having been to the Soviet Union in the period, you know, just after Chernobyl, it is still very much in the psyche of of, of the Russian people. Um, yeah. uh, you know that they're they're constantly being under threat, and 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 NATO's move east has has uh, you know he's certainly amplifying that. Um, and indeed, if you think about the way that China are behaving, they're just mm. thinking to themselves. It seems to me, you know, it's our turn to be dominant. You know, we've always been suppressed. We had the Japanese invading us in 1932, whatever it was, uh, and atrocities and all that sort of thing. You know, it's our turn. And that's how it feels. You know, there, there are these patterns repeating. And you've written about World War Two and kinder transports yeah. and, and that sort of thing. So there is, you know, and, and also your book about um, the the cull of pets, which we, we looked at. I had no idea about that. We looked at each other and went, what? Right, almost. I know. It's funny, isn't I, I it? saw Animals that. Yeah, that that story. I mean, this is it. I just love stories, and I I read a story on my phone. You know, when you read the news about mm. this cull of pets, seven hundred and fifty thousand pets were put down at the beginning of World War Two because people didn't think they could feed them on the rations. Yeah, and they That's thought so that the dogs would run around biting people. And I thought, my God, there's a story there. What would the children do? And I decided they would hide them away. And I called the book The Emergency Zoo. It came out in 2016. And everyone who read it said, I'd never heard this story. Um, it's becoming a bit more in the sort of mainstream now. And I think there's been a, another book or so. But mine was very much one of the first books to raise this story um and it was wonderful and the research and it's uh, it's and i and i discovered that there were um two jewish children who were associated with the kinder transport well i think they came on the kinder transport and they asked a british charity to look after to to fund the quarantine for their dog and i thought my god there was a kinder transport dog sort of associated with it and that's how my book saving hanno came out because I brought this child in the emergency zoo. He's one of the children hiding his dog away in the woods. And then a uh, a company asked me to write his story. Mm. And Otterbury Books published it. And it is... Uh... So, so in a way, I mean, if you were to ask me, you know, your books, do you just sit down to write about World War II? Absolutely not. I, I get inspired by something, something I read, something I, I hear on the news, something. I was inspired to write The Emergency Zoo. And out of that came so many stories about animals. In a way, I haven't really finished. I could write several more. And the second book I was asked to write, Saving Hanno, which was the Kinder Transport book. But I also started to read about, um, I knew vaguely about this dog. I think he's quite well known. Um, he was called Rip, and my book is called Rip to the Rescue. And he was able to detect people alive under the rubble after the bombing. 
and he became the forerunner of search and rescue dogs. Yeah. Mm. And I also learned about teenage messenger boys, 13, 14 year old boys. They were supposed to be 17, but they lied about their age, cycling through the blitz with messages for the fire brigade with the bombs falling on them and the shrapnel falling on them. I thought, my goodness, I've got to write about them. So I wrote a book called Rip to the Rescue, which came out in America. It doesn't have a British publisher yet, but you can get it on Amazon. And it's about this 13 year old boy riding around and he discovers Rip and discovers that Rip can discover people under the rubble and they they team up. Um, so I ended up with three books about World War Two, but they grew out of each other and out of I'm, I mean, I have a huge interest in history love animals there's there's lots of reasons why I would want to write these books and you know they're part of sort of but it is interesting that prior to those books and a boy from Baghdad I had not particularly written um Jewish characters um and there is a bit of controversy amongst us Jewish children's writers that we were not really encouraged there's not a lot of interest unless they're you know great holocaust stories and what yeah. we are trying to do now is to write um, Jewish characters into contemporary stories who were, you know, solving the problem or or just part of the world that, that we, you know, so that Jewish children see themselves in books, just as we had this great drive of, you know, where are the black children in books? They, they were never the main characters. They never solved the problem. You, you might get a token black kid in the background and, and black writers and, and the whole diversity thing was driven by saying, well, where are the children of color? And it's a very important question. And then we started to say, yeah, but where are the Jewish kids? Nobody mm. writes Jewish kids into into stories. And it is, again, um, you know, the tide is beginning to turn. And so although mine have been more historical, um, I have written a contemporary novel where the second main character is Jewish. His name is Noah. And he's just one of the kids in the book and helps the main character who's going through an absolute crisis. But he does reference his bar mitzvah. And and they do go to synagogues so that so he's not talking about the Holocaust. He's not talking about anti-Semitism. He's not talking about controversial subjects. He's just being Jewish in the book. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm hoping that that um, will contribute to, you know, the rising canon. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. The rising canon. I like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, it's a departure for you. Your next book, which is out very shortly as we're speaking to you in February um the the uh, bronte girl which yes. is again you know we looked at each other and went what a great premise i know what a it's, great it's like that's your thing you find a premise and then you run with it well um and we ought to say I what think... the premise is first of all but <laughs> yeah so we're talking well, about it young... because it, it you're so no do do go ahead Ed, or... well is it, so it's a it's yeah. a, it's a young girl um you know illness sweeps through her village and she moves into Haworth uh, and how Haworth. is it pronounced? Haworth. Haworth. Goes to Haworth and obviously then is part of the Bronte family setup and things develop from there. Um, but what a great fascinating yeah, yeah. Uh, concept. Yeah, so I mean, my, my inspirations, um, they they come from a trigger 
Um, you know, they're not, I think I'll write a book about the Brontes or whatever. It, no. It's um, So the trigger was in 2016, it was the bicentenary of the birth of Charlotte Bronte. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff going on. It was very exciting. Uh, there were new books. There was um, a radio dramatization of Jane Eyre. There was um, a beautiful new production at the National Theatre, which I went to. I've always loved Jane Eyre. It's my favorite Bronte book. But I was I've always say, loved I remember the Bronte. reading it yeah. as a teenager yeah, and just yeah. Because my sister read it first and then she said, oh, this is yeah. brilliant. So I read it and I just didn't look up for however long. I know. <laughs> and it, for me, it was the way in which Jane, as because I was a very quiet child. I mean, I was a school girl in the 50s and 60s. You didn't open your mouth. Nobody wanted to hear what you had to say at school. And and you didn't talk a lot around you know, my grandparents. You know, you had to be kind of well behaved, particularly as a girl. And there is little Jane you know, standing up to this aunt and saying things that I just wouldn't have ever said. And I loved it. And I thought, my goodness. And it, it's kind of lived with me, I think, that that boldness um, and that female boldness at that time. You know, it's the 1820s, I think the book is set. They always set their books decades earlier than the period they were living in, the Bronte's. Yeah. I think it was the fashion of the time. Um so I'm I'm getting very immersed again in the Brontes, and Claire <laughs> Harmon wrote a new biography, The Life of Charlotte Bronte. So I, I hear it dramatized on the radio, I hear it read abridged on the radio. I think, no, no, I don't want to listen to this. I want to read the book. So I'm reading the book and I get to around page 126. And at this stage, the four surviving siblings, the two older ones died as little ones, they're teenagers. And Tabitha Ackroyd, who is their servant and who's practically brought these children up after the death of their mother and their siblings and, and kept them, you know, on the straight and narrow because they're obviously psychologically very affected and made sure they've got a secure home. Patrick did this as well. There's a lot of psychology went into the bringing up of these children after the awful experiences. Um, and she falls and breaks her leg, Tabitha. She's in her 50s. And Patrick wants to send her away to convalesce with her sister. And the children go on hunger strike and say, if Tabitha goes, we won't eat. You know, it was like quite dramatic, really. They could not imagine the parsonage without Tabitha, their surrogate mother. So the sexton, John Brown, had six daughters. And it says in the book, they brought in Martha Brown. She was to be the servant, um, to do the work. The girls would also have to join in a lot, help. And she was strong and intelligent and capable and 11 years old. And I stopped that point I just stop and look at this and this I think is the mystery of fiction because suddenly my mind goes on a walk and it goes what <laughs> if what if what if a girl from the village from Haworth a very 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 poor girl you know they haven't got enough to eat they're one step away from the workhouse is called up to the parsonage because I knew at that point they would bring in extra staff to do the washing or whatever what if she's called up to the parsonage to work and she is gifted. Now I don't write children and teen characters as gifted often because most of your readers would feel a bit left out. I don't like that they've always got to be gifted at something, but in this case, I needed gifted. I wanted her to be a gifted writer. And of course, because of her gender and her poverty, completely suppressed, you know, her mother has died, her father's become a drunk, her sister's also drinking, she's working in the pub, she's 12, and she nips the gin all the time and hangs out with the mill lads in the ginnel behind the pub, smoking and drinking and getting into trouble. And um, so, but Kate is, is in a different world. 
And she comes into contact with Charlotte Bronte. And for various reasons, Charlotte comes to realise that she wants to write. And Charlotte, or she encourages, she lends her books, which she they did do. And Martha Brown, this little servant who stayed with them until after everyone died. And then she went to Ireland with Charlotte's husband after she died and became, you know, in his household. Amazing woman, really. But she, they lent her books and she read, you know. Um, so she shows Charlotte, Charlotte and Anne lend her books. She falls out with Emily, which, of course, is not not difficult, difficult character. And yeah. um, she's surviving. And, and, it, and they and they also talk to her about their radical ideas about women. Women are equal to men. Women have the same needs as men. Women don't want to be expected to sit at home and make puddings and sew buttons on. You know, this whole thing. They were before the suffragettes. That wasn't what was happening at that time, but it was about women should have the same opportunities as men. And of course, the Bronte sisters realised that they would have to fend for themselves because Branwell was useless and Patrick was going to die. And that's why they really pushed themselves to publish novels, because that was where the money was. So so Kate, so and I also became very interested. I got an Arts Council grant to write this book. Um, research. Yeah, I spent a year researching up in Haworth in the um and the archives were open for me by Anne Dinsdale, principal curator at the Barnet Parsonage Museum. And I have seen the little books. I have seen <laughs> Anne's final letter, which is heartbreaking. There's so much more I'd like to do with my life. You know, that's the kind of paraphrasing, but that's what she writes in the final mm. letter before she dies. I've seen, you know, so many wonderful documents and and read so many things. And of course, I've done far more research than I needed. But if I was going to open Charlotte Bronte's mouth and make her speak, I needed all the layering of everything I could ever know about her in order to make that sound convincing. And I will say that last June I went up to Haworth. We had a sort of informal gathering of Bronte Society members, including academics who lecture on the Brontes, which was a little unnerving. And, and they said to me, oh, read a bit from your book, Miriam, and uh, and talk about your book. So I gave this talk and I decided, OK, I'm going to bite the bullet. And I read from chapter three when Charlotte Bronte and Kate talk. And they liked it. They said it, it works. <laughs> That's good. Wow. So the book's wow. coming yeah, it's out. It's interesting, March isn't it? This, this, it's that idea of um, a book set historic fiction that the, the actual book is just the tip of the iceberg, and then you've got all the research and the thinking and the and the works that you do before you even, you know, put the words on the page. And I loved doing that. I have to say, you know, I, I it was just so wonderful. And you see. To write a book about the Bronte, Haworth is a gift. I mean, first of all, it's so largely intact. I know exactly where my character lived <laughs> and, you know, the, the sort of the poverty stricken ginnel she was in, although some of you know, the buildings have changed to some degree. But you walk up the same cobbles the Brontes walked up. You've got the cemetery. Um, you've got the church has been rebuilt, but you've got the site of the church. You've got the parsonage and then you've got the moors behind you. I mean, it's endless. We and I've been know. over to Brussels. Yeah, it's beautiful up there. I've been over to Brussels where Charlotte and Emily went to school and done walks around there. I go to the Brussels Bronte Conference every year. And of course, I've been to the British Library. And yes, we went on a visit to the British Library and we saw um, an, um, the, the original manuscript of Villette. And Villette is um, when 
when um, um, Charlotte Charlotte was living in in Brussels and madly in love with her professor, and it, it was it was a very very strange uh, passionate thing, and she's left alone in the summer holidays and she wanders around Brussels at night. She she's really having some sort of breakdown. It's an incredibly modern psychological side to this novel. It's it's amazing. But um, she's writing about it and she doesn't simply cross it out. She actually cuts bits out of the manuscript because she obviously felt she'd gone too far in revealing herself in this book. It's extraordinary to see. Wow. Wow. I thought, yeah, I, I feel a bit mind blown by all that. I want to see it all. Yeah, I, I am too. And I think that, there. I mean, to been able to pick up and handle all those documents and immerse yourself so deeply in the in the fabric of of Howarth and 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 the Bronte's life um I mean I find it inspirational whenever I come into contact with any object of a hero of mine it it, it just the connection you can feel that a certain energy coming from these things so it must have been to to, to have actually got the book done given you had all of that knowledge and uh, context in, with which to work. Sometimes, I mean, I work from the perspective of what I've been writing about World War II, uh, actually knowing not enough, really, uh, and probably making a lot of assumptions of things that, that weren't true because I don't want it, you know, I need to get the story done. But to do it yes. the other way around, reverse engineer, is, is, quite, is, is quite a challenge, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I hadn't written, I mean, I had written historical fiction, obviously, before, but mm. um, 20th century historical fiction, this one, going right back to the 19th century, I was a bit concerned. But, you know, basically, this is Kate's story, and she doesn't, she's in, in my imagination. Mm. So although I bring, I mean, I bring all the Brontes alive, Tabitha, Martha, um, and the stationer, John Greenwood. Yeah. Um, but because it's it's Kate's story. It's that which drives the book. And the material, you know, is moulded in around it rather than obviously what you don't want. Nobody wants to read a novel where the where the author just shoved all their research in. It's like walking through mud. I'm, yeah. I'm very, very sensitive to that. And so, mm. you know, it's it's really about I mean, I love writing about the washing. It's one of my obsessions. I don't really even know why. Um, and at the beginning of the book, it's all about how Kate has to do her own washing in the filthy ginnel at home and then go up to the parsonage and do their massive wash, you know. And my agent sort of got me to cut at least three or four pages out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was That's really funny. into it. Brilliant. You could turn it into a short story. <laughs> well, before we get to the random question, which is coming, um, okay. you know, let's tie this together, which, you know, what we've, you know, we've been discussing there's a such a strong streak of the importance of everyday humanity in your work in the sense of making that appeal to the widest possible audience in terms of you know reminding us that we're all we all face the same challenges no matter what our backgrounds are uh, is, is that a fair way of describing it yes i mean my work's been described as gritty uplift 
So my books never end on a depressing note. I can't bear reading things like that. I think there's got to be hope even in the most difficult of situations. So, you know, I've written about some of the most challenging subjects of our time, you know, refugees and um, drug taking. And my book, Always Here For You, which has this character Noah in it, the Jewish second, second character is yeah. Jewish. Um, this is about a girl who's groomed on the internet by a paedophile and um, such, you know, how dangerous that is. Um, so I, I'm happy to take on what well, I think that's what drives me. I'm, I'm interested in very strong subjects. Um, so my books are gritty, but they are I write contemporary or historical realistic fiction. I, I don't write fantasy and things. And and that that's what and that's what drives me. You know, everyday humanity. We're all living in this world. We are all citizens of the world. We all have a right to be in this world and your your interconnection comment is very good we are interconnected and it's about recognizing it and promoting that that's where peace lies and we all have hope we all have hope mm. we must have hope indeed well okay uh which is a beautiful way to, to end any interview but we unfortunately are stuck <laughs> with um something that is a regular on the show and people will know it as rebecca's random question Right, so the day we're recording this podcast is Valentine's Day. And some people give other people chocolates on Valentine's Day, just saying. And so my question to you is, there's a box of chocolates in front of you. Which chocolate would you be and why? I would be the dark chocolate with a truffle filling because um, I like quite challenging um, quite gritty stories, but I like a sweet in the middle um, so that we always end on a note of hope. That's a that, good answer. That's a brilliant answer. What would you be? Um, well, you know, we always fight over them. It's the orange cream, isn't it? We have, look, look, I've got the, the, the ginger hair and the, you know, so I think that makes You'd me... be an orange queen because you've got ginger hair. Yeah, that's why it's always appealed to me, I think. Yeah, I've always seen a sort of parallel. Yeah. What about you? I'd be the Orange Queen because it's everybody's favourite. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's not. Some people really don't like Orange Queen, but I don't understand why, because I love <laughs> Orange Queen. I have Terry's Chocolate Orange. I have, what else do I have that's Orange Cream? I love Orange Chocolate Cake, Orange Cupcakes. Wonderful. Sorry, my, my <laughs> headphones started to rebel at the end of the interview and sort of it fell off. like your answer. That's no, right. that's right. <laughs> well, there we go. What a way to finish. <laughs> We were two orange chocolates and a and a truffle, dark chocolate truffle, which I love as well. Actually, anything dark chocolate, I love dark chocolate. Absolutely. Well, Miriam, it, no it has been a brilliant <laughs> opportunity to to meet you and and to discuss your work and really inspiring, actually. Yeah, very very thought provoking. But uh, it, I think for every writer listening to this, they'll feel inspired to tackle. You know, because quite a lot of the discussion we have as a publisher with, with people is, do you think it's too dark a topic for us to be writing about? And we're a crime publisher. Or too controversial, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know. you know, do we want to go there? Because it could provoke a terrible debate. But actually, it's really wonderful to Anything speak to somebody. Anything that provokes debate, to me, is a good thing. Yeah, so. um, as long as it's handled well. And indeed, that's very clear from you, Miriam. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really a lot of fun. And it's good for me to think about my work and, and why I do it and what I do it. I'm, I find it interesting to be asked all these questions. <laughs> Inspiring interview. I like how we can get very deep on some very pertinent um, 
subjects that everybody has experience of. And then I can ask her, what chocolate would you be in a box of chocolates? And she just went with it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, she did. And uh, that is one of the things that's a hallmark of our interviews. (laughs) So uh, who is our next victim for the Rebecca's Random Question? (laughs) Victim. Um, So this week, uh, well, next week, in fact, we're talking to an author called Paul Waters, who you and he might have quite a lot in common. Uh, three letters, BBC. Um, yes. So he's written, well, he's he's done loads. I mean, he's got a, an award-winning podcast as well, but he's he's the author of a book called Blackwater Town, um, which was published by Unbound in 2020. So we'll be finding out more about that and his inspirations and his career and his... He's done a lot of things in his life. He's so. done an awful lot, so... Yeah. He worked for the BBC too, which, um, you know, he's a survivor. <laughs> in more ways than one, as you'll find out next week. Look, it's not all doom and gloom on this podcast because we ought to celebrate the fact that uh, the wonderful Mark Whiteman had a huge shortlisting nomination this week. He did. So, uh, and, it, and the news came to us um, on Valentine's Day, in fact, where we were tucking into a lovely steak and a delicious, um, expensive red wine. And my email popped up with Mark Whiteman saying, Guess what? I've been shortlisted for the New Zealand Book Lovers uh, Best Fiction of 2024 award. Brilliant. So, yes, as soon as dinner was over, I was dancing around on the, on the social media, spreading the news as best I could. And, and that, of course, is for book two of the Betting Court series, which is Chasing, Chasing the, the Dragon. Dragon. Well done to Mark. Um, you know, it is a brilliant book and deserves all praise and all yeah, oh, I everything. mean, I wasn't surprised. That's, no, 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 no. It's, it's, I, that's what I love about fantastic. that sort of news. You get that sort of news, you think, well, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We we took um, a little bit of time this weekend. It was the end of half term. The boys, your boys have been away. Yeah. And um, that gave us a chance, as we said last week, we we're going to take stock a bit and we did a bit of tidying. I think that's the, the main bit of stock taking we did. I mean, we did also do some throwing ahead and thinking things. Um, but as ever, you know, the day-to-day gets in the way of, you know, making yeah. super mega quick progress. And, and I think that one of the things that I'm sort of reminding myself of is that if you decide to do something, it sometimes takes three months to really fully implement the changes you want to make or the goal you've set yourself. Well, so. you, you actually have to give yourself dates and times to do the thing you're yeah. going to do. If you don't, it just drifts. It does drift, and um, and so that's part of what we were thinking. But we did slip away this weekend just for a couple of sort of mini visits to um, locally to us, uh, just over the border in Shropshire, is the beautiful town of Bridgenorth, um, which is, if you've not been, is spectacular. It's sort of split over two levels, the low town and the high town. And it's also the home of new branch of Booker Bookshops. And you'll remember back in September, I, I went for a job with them at, at that store and didn't get it. But um very pleased to go and have a look around their perfectly formed little shop in the high street. Which yeah, it's very it, sweet little shop. It is. And, and what struck us, and we were in Chester on the Sunday as well, we went decided to go and just hop up the road an hour and a quarter up to Chester, which is, again, one of the most charismatic places in Britain, really. Um, just how many people are out and about? Now, I know we're in recession officially in this country, but the footfall in both Bridge North and Chester 
It was huge, wasn't it? Yeah, but I bet if you went to Wolverhampton or Cannock yeah, or Stafford, yeah, yeah. the tumbleweeds would be... Totally. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm not trying to play it down, but it's just goes to show that if you've got independent shops and a, and a, and a unique sort of um, historical high street with you know lots of it going going for it mm. um people will still come yeah they will mm. they will and uh, you know uh, that's that's how it felt but it just gave us an opportunity to get out of the barn uh hobeck towers and you know potter about and see the world and get some daylight and um and have a cup of tea yeah Coffee. Uh, just just get a little bit of energy back actually because you know, it's been a, a tough old few weeks. You've been mega, mega busy. I've been mega busy, but also dealing with loads of family stuff. And uh, it just like it, it, it was nice to just put that block in and say, right, we've done something. We've been seeing something else of the world. Yeah. Than just the corridors of. It was of, the first time since Christmas, wasn't it? Yeah. Christmas finished, and we had New Year, and then bam, we were into full on work mode, and we've been there for six weeks. So. Yeah. It was good to. To sort of even just for a couple of days, imagine we might be on holiday. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we're super mega busy this week as well. Um, quite a bit of work come my way this week, but we've got uh, we've got a guest coming tomorrow, which is going to be very exciting. Yeah, so we have a, a successful independent writer coming to use the studio. Yeah, <laughs> and a friend, of course, and a friend of ours. Yes, um, which is exciting. So we've had to tidy up a bit for that. We might need to do it again visit. by look of yeah, the place. You now start to see, notice all the things you didn't touch. Um, but, uh, yeah, so busy week ahead. And uh, I've got so much audio stuff on at the moment, about four or five projects all sort of colliding into each other and demanding attention. Yep. So I shall just live in my studio uh, for the best part of this week, I think. Um, but it's, you know, we wouldn't have it any other way, really. Uh, no, it pays the bills, and that's the main thing. Yeah, it does. It does, and uh, you know, let's uh, let's celebrate that. Anyway, thank you for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. It has been a pleasure to speak to you. I'm sorry, I really had a good rant, but it needed to be said. Um, you know, I'm just fed up with big tech taking the Mickey. I really am, but it doesn't stop us from carrying on with what we do. No, and we we remain ever hopeful. So take a look at our website www hobeck.net for details of all our books audiobooks dare I say it authors and everything that we're up to archpub.net for our publishing services arm Adrian Hobart narration for my narration e-bits uh, there'll be a new blog going up this week at some point uh, you can get around to writing it I'll get AI to do it it'll be much better I'm sure well you give me a tenner I'll do it <laughs> and uh, yeah we'll, we've got tons on and tons to talk about I'm sure in our next episode of the Hobcast Book Show. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're new to us and enjoyed it. Uh, if that uh, isn't an oxymoron, then please... Now stop it. Uh, <laughs> please consider subscribing. So from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you, and have a wonderful and... Creative... Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to The Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. 
Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.